You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So, the fall and sin, a very important doctrine undergirding everything that goes on in redemption. And the question that we begin with is 13. Did our first parents, referring to Adam and Eve, continue in the estate wherein they were created? And the answer given, our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. So what this does, and we've touched on it before, but it does raise the deep and difficult problem of the origin of evil. (laughs) And it is a difficult problem. It's one that we'll never answer completely. God has not seen fit to reveal that. But Adam and Eve had freedom of will, as our answer says, to choose either good or evil, to obey or disobey. They could do either. They were in that position where they had both the liberty and the ability, as we'll look at in a minute. As originally created, Adam and Eve had the liberty and the ability to keep or violate the covenant. And we talked about, I think we talked about the covenant of works, where God created Adam as a covenant being, and he gave the special prohibition not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Liberty means that the human will is neither forced nor determined to good or evil. There is nothing external, nothing outside of the human being that forces him or her to make a choice. And we have liberty even today. There is nothing outside of us that forces us to choose. As a matter of fact, we can never say that we were forced to choose something. Even if somebody held a gun to your head, you choose. You can choose death, or you can choose to comply with the command. Either one, but the fact is you were not forced. You chose. So liberty is that the will is neither forced nor determined to good or evil. Adam and Eve had liberty to choose. Ability has to do with the capacity, the internal capacity to will that which is spiritually good. So liberty has to do with external forces. Ability has to do with internal ability or capacity. And so we say that as originally created, Adam and Eve had both the liberty, nothing external forcing them, and the ability, the internal capacity to choose good or evil. That's a very helpful distinction, I think, that the confession makes as well. I've said this before, but I'll never forget. It must have been in the early 2000s when Elder Gilliland led an evening study once on that chapter in the confession, and I'll never forget it. It was a tremendous treatment of the liberty and ability of human, human choice. So as originally in de- created, man was endowed with moral freedom, choose good or evil, And he was a free and responsible covenant being. Free to choose, responsible for the choice. 
And in his unfallen state, as we said earlier, man had the power to will and to do what was good, and yet he was subject to fall. He was mutable. He was changeable. And this is one of the reasons, again, we don't know ultimately why a holy and righteous being like Adam would choose to sin, but what we can say is that he was subject to fall. He wasn't an unchangeable being. Somehow, in the providence of God, this changeable being went from holy to unholy, righteous to unrighteous, good to evil. And it was Adam's fault that he failed to keep covenant, and he was responsible for his sin. He chose. Now, we say that God ordained whatsoever comes to pass, and that's true. And you're going to say to me, well... How is that possible? How does God ordain the fall and yet Adam's responsible? I don't know. <laughs> but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Right? This is what he's revealed. And so all we can do is think God's thoughts after him and say, okay, Lord, it's got to be both. I don't know how they harmonize, but they do. Divine sovereignty over every aspect of creation and history human responsibility over every choice that we make as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so he was disobedient and this implies that the responsibility lies with the man any questions on these preliminary comments okay let's move on now, again, as I said, this is perhaps the most difficult of all questions. I always got this when I was teaching, <laughs> and I still get it, and who knows the answer? We know that the angels were superior creatures, far superior to human beings. We know that the angels were the first ones to sin. Sin ultimately did not enter God's universe through the man, it entered through the angels. God created them holy and immortal. They excelled in knowledge. They were mighty in power. And he created them to execute his commandments and to praise his name. That's their purpose. They were pure spirits, and yet they too were subject to change. So the angels were not immutable beings. The only immutable being is God. He's the only one who's unchanging. So the angels themselves, as lofty, superior, holy, righteous creatures, yet they were subject to change. Far superior to humans, yet, interestingly enough, and very strange, appointed to be servants and ministers to the elect. Isn't that incredible? These fallible, sinful, depraved creatures are the objects of the angelic ministry. <laughs> are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That is an incredible truth. Though vastly superior to human beings, the angelic hosts were to serve their inferior <clears throat> counterparts. We're not given a lot of information regarding the angels. We're not given a lot of information, practically none at all, regarding the pre-Adamic pre situation with the angels. 
But we do know that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. There's no change in his decree. And so these angels were appointed to serve their inferior counterparts. Is it possible, perhaps even likely, that the fallen angels, those who sinned, would not bear the humiliation of serving these lesser beings? Can you think of it? You're a lofty creature, far excelling human beings in knowledge and power, beauty, splendor. And yet you're told by God Almighty, you're going to serve not just creatures that are less than you, fallen creatures, sinful creatures. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, there are various ways to translate that, but the idea is that these holy angels who were mutable did not remain within their proper and appointed place. Why? Well, it's not because they were attempted by something physical because they have no bodies. You know, Eve, there was various reasons why she was tempted, her curiosity, her appetites, her pride. The angels don't have bodies. They have pride. Exactly. Lucifer, the highest angel, the greatest of all creatures, perhaps proudly refused to be a servant to the human race. Here is this loftiest of all angels, the greatest of any creature God had ever made. And he's told, you are going to serve elect sinners from the human race. Wouldn't do it. Too proud. Too proud. It, he must have been furious. Now, this is all speculation, okay? I want you to know that. This is speculation. But he must have been furious to learn that the eternal Son of God would bypass the angels... That'll never change. I, I don't understand it. We're such inferior creatures. But maybe, and I thought about this, maybe it's because God loves to demonstrate his power, mercy, and grace through the inferior creatures. The humblest of sinners he oftentimes uses to do the greatest works, right? Spurgeon being converted by some no-name ruling elder on a Sunday night during a snowstorm, reading a sermon. <laughs> Who does that? God does. It's an incredible thing. So everything serves for the benefit of elect sinners, all of creation, all of providence, all of redemption, all of it, and there would be nothing at all in this entire universe except God were it not for the bride of Christ, whom he redeemed. There would be no angels. There'd be no creation, no providence, if it weren't for the bride of Christ. From all eternity, the only thing desired by the Trinity, outside of themselves, was the Son's bride. He wanted a bride. And that's the reason for all of it. And that's stunning. That you and I, as part of the visible and eternal and invisible church, that's the reason for all of this. That's the only reason that history continues. The only reason that the human race hasn't been destroyed long ago is because Jesus wants his bride to be full and every elect sinner will be drawn in. 
So he continues to convert and bring sinners into the bride of Christ. He made all things visible and invisible in order for Jesus to come and take his bride home. And so the everlasting love of God for his chosen people is strong and steadfast and unwavering. It'll never change, ever. There is nothing you or I can do to jeopardize our salvation. He will chastise us if he needs to. He'll spank us spiritually, but that love will never change. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Any questions on these interesting truths? Okay. Oh, Jim. That's right. Yeah, that's an amazing thing. And I think part of it, too, is the fact that he will not let his original purpose. Making wise the simple. So temptation and sin, we're told that man fell through the temptation of Satan. The probation, as we talked about before, was brought to a head by this unholy intruder. The high priest of Eden was to guard the sanctuary, to expel the unholy intruder if he should come, and God brought the probation to a head. He permitted it according to his wise and holy counsel. God did permit it. There is nothing that can happen in this earth or to you and I that doesn't happen by his permission. And the confession, I think, goes farther and says it's not just by a bare permission. He ordained it. It was eternally decreed for the purpose of magnifying his glory. So the tempter approaches the woman first. He appeals to her appetite, her curiosity, her pride. He said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And there is the fall. The catastrophic plunge into sin that affected the entire human race. She was deceived and persuaded to eat. And she convinced her husband, who himself willfully ate. She was deceived. Now, some have argued that so was he. It just doesn't say that. I'm not convinced. I think she was deceived. I think the devil was clever enough to go through her first. And he wasn't deceived. But as we'll see, he did so willingly walking frontwards with eyes wide open. 
When they both ate, the covenant of works was violated and the human race fell from its original innocence and man was now an apostate. He was in rebellion against God with whom he no longer enjoyed fellowship. He was alienated, which is one of the reasons why reconciliation is such a wonderful thing that Jesus sacrificed himself and shed his blood for the reconciliation of his people. We're reconciled with our God and have fellowship with him, which is one of the reasons why we can come into that sanctuary boldly. We're reconciled. We call upon him as a father. As proof of their sense of guilt, Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Adam, where are you? Hiding behind a tree. I was afraid. As evidence of their sense of defilement and shame, they tried to cover their nakedness. Who told you you were naked? So guilt, defilement, and shame. And of course, we all experience that when we sin, which we do every day. But because of Jesus, his blood cleanses us, and we have that reconciliation. We have the clothing of righteousness around us. And there's no need, as long as we repent, to carry that shame with us. Any questions on this part? Okay. So what the devil did in his scheming, he undermined the God-ordained authority structure. <clears throat> now we're going to talk about this, and of course in our culture this is taboo, but it's the teaching of Scripture. It is a God-ordained authority structure. It has nothing to do with inherent value or dignity. God made man in his image, male and female, both made in the image of God, both in the highest human dignity, but there is an authority structure. Eve was subordinate to and dependent upon Adam, her husband. That's a good thing. It's God-ordained. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived <clears throat> and became a transgressor. So she was last in creation, first in transgression, ill-equipped for taking the lead. Equipped for so much else. Absolutely essential for the human race. But in this particular instance and ever since, she's ill-equipped for taking the lead. It's not clear whether or not Adam was actually with her when the devil tempted her to disobey. The text is not clear. Some have argued that he was with her. Others have argued that he wasn't with her at that time. My thinking is that if he was with her, he would have said something to prevent her fall into sin. Speculation, again, I have to admit. But that's my thinking, that he had the direct revelation of God about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He communicated that to his wife. The devil knew that she was ill-equipped to lead that relationship, and so he approached her first. And I think if he had been with her right at the moment of temptation, he would have said something. Don? Well, it's a question of leadership, too. You know, if he didn't take the leadership, he would not say anything. Yeah, if he abdicated, you're absolutely right. So, and some have argued that he was with her, as you said, and he abdicated his role of leadership, which that, too, undermined the authority structure. So, yeah, you're right. Laura? Yeah, both of them. 
In that case, both of them sinned, even before the, the fruit was eaten, right? Because he abdicated, and in her heart, the desire was there. So yeah, there's all kinds of blame to pass around, despite the fact that they wanted to pass the buck, which is what we've been doing ever since. The way I understand it, yeah, the way I understand it, when Paul talks, is Paul, yeah, the weaker vessel, that whole thing. I don't think it means that women are just inherently weak. No, that's not what it means. I think in some ways a woman is more vulnerable. That's, I think that's what he's talking about. Because there's many women who are very strong, very wise, very capable, really good leaders. But the problem is, is that the way God made the female, there are certain vulnerabilities that are not inherent in man. Just like the way that God made man, he can't do certain things that our ladies can do. So I don't think it's in any way a sense of inferiority. It's simply a means of being more vulnerable to this kind of temptation. Rob? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's true. That we are to treat our wives as cherished vessels, our women. But again, to define what that weaker vessel, if that's what we translate it, means. Again, I don't think it means that men are strong, women are weak. That, that's not what he's saying. Because as we know, there are many strong women. Um, I think it does mean that in this area, in the era of morality, I'm trying to think of examples like these women that um, out of the goodness of their hearts, they begin a writing relationship with prisoners, criminals. And over time, they fall in love with them. Now, again, that's a very poor analogy, but I'm saying, what, what would, what, what, why does that happen? It happens often. I think there's a vulnerability, a very, a very wonderful thing. It, it can be a very good strength in our women because they're nurturing. They're the life of a congregation, for example. But again, Satan knew it and exploited it. That's the problem, Ruthann. Um, just in terms of authority, you've said before that women are to submit to their husband and, and women are to submit to their leadership of the church. Right. That, that doesn't mean women can't be a principal or a CEO oh. or... Or president, or prime minister. Margaret Thatcher was a fantastic prime minister. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, to your husband, not to all men. That's right. That's exactly right. Adam was not deceived. He ate the tree knowingly, willfully, deliberately, and without excuse. To seduce Adam, the devil utilized the soft persuasion and the personal example of his wife, his beloved wife. He tempted the man not by the speech of the serpent, but by the allurements of his wife. She was the first missionary for hell. And the man was overcome by his wife's influence, and death entered the world by his transgression. Adam sinned against knowledge. He sinned against means and mercies and the clear light of God's express revelation. His guilt, I think, was more heinous than hers. Very difficult thing. And also because he is the public representative of the human race. 
You know, sins get their heinousness by several aggravations. And again, there, there's so much more aggravation in Adam's transgression than in Eve's. Both of them are awful, but Adam especially, very heinous. He was greatly, it was greatly aggravated because he was a public person and given every possible advantage. Jesus had no advantages. Jesus was in the wilderness with every disadvantage. <laughs> a sin-cursed world. Hungry, thirsty, tired, exhausted. Adam had everything. And he still sinned. Any questions on this part? Okay. Well, sin then. We have two questions here. Did they, did they continue? No, they fell. So what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And so the Bible defines sin in terms of the righteous law of God. Every sin, even the least, is against the sovereignty and the goodness and the holiness of God and against his righteous law. So sin is defined in Scripture according to law. Sin is lawlessness in 1 John 3, 4. God's law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good, and sin is in part the want of conformity unto this law, failure to do that which God commands. And as we get older, hopefully, because of sanctification, the transgressions become less, but the omissions become more evident. Oh, how I omit so many things every single day. You know, you're not supposed to steal. But I am supposed to do everything in my power to further, to procure, to enhance the wealth of this man right here. Have I done that? No. I am supposed to do everything in my power to uphold and honor the marriages in this church. Have I done that? No. I'm supposed to do everything in my power to promote life, <clears throat> to defend the innocent, do all of that. Have I done that? No, I, I haven't done those things. I've omitted so much. And on the day of judgment, those omissions will be held up. And then Jesus, my advocate, will come along beside of me and say, he's one of mine. It's clean. But it'll all serve for his glory. So that's want of conformity. Transgression of is doing that which God prohibits. Clearly, we understand that. So sin is both, the negative and the positive. It's comprehensive. <clears throat> it covers everything we do and don't do. On the positive side, all transgressions of the law of God are sin without qualification. Every breach of his moral law. On the negative side, all neglect, defect, or omission is sin just as much as murder or blasphemy. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 25, when the king talks about those who are on his left, what will he say? You didn't visit me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't feed me. Sins of omission. That's what he'll say. They thought that they were doing the right thing. The Pharisees were all about don'ts, don'ts, don'ts. <clears throat> I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Well, the problem is you didn't do everything positive. I didn't murder, didn't commit adultery, didn't lie, didn't steal. Yes, but you didn't tell the truth. So on. You get the point. Anything and everything that does not conform to the revealed will of God is sin. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. 
Any questions on that? Sin is comprehensive. Thank God for the righteousness of Christ. We're clothed with this alien righteousness so that we don't have to measure up. I mean, the goal is perfection, of course, but that'll happen in eternity. Right now, it's just sincere trust in the Savior. He's the one who fulfilled the law, not us. There's a big difference between guilt and depravity. Guilt is legal liability to punishment due on account of sin. You're guilty, condemned, you're punished. Depravity is the moral and spiritual defilement of the human nature. Guilt rests upon the sinner, while depravity abides within the sinner. So guilt is this, this um, judicial, uh, judicial declaration that you are a guilty sinner. You need to be punished. But depravity is that corruption that invades your entire being. And it's important to understand that guilt can be imputed. Depravity cannot. Imputed is that word that, that's drawn from the banking industry. If you have, a, you have an account and this amount of money is credited to your account, it's yours. You never earned it, you never deposited it, but it's yours. Guilt is credited to your account. You, didn't, you weren't there when Adam sinned, but he was your representative and God imputed his guilt to you. So, all who descend from Adam by ordinary generation have his guilt imputed to them. This is one of the reasons why the virgin birth is absolutely essential. You get rid of the virgin birth, throw your Bible out. Go party, because you're going to hell. If there's no virgin birth, there's no gospel. Because Jesus had to come by extraordinary revelation so that he wouldn't have the guilt of Adam imputed to him. The virgin birth is essential. On the other hand, depravity is passed on organically through heredity. Guilt is not. Everybody who's generated naturally have hereditary sin, inbred corruption, native iniquity. That baby, that toddler is sinful. As cute as they are, what do they call them? The little cute vipers? Or There's all kinds of names we can use. <clears throat> Bundles of sin. Original sin in its widest sense includes both the imputed guilt and the inherited depravity, both of those. But in its more narrow sense, original sin refers to the depravity or the corruption of human nature. So you have to understand which one you're using. Is it the wide sense, guilt and corruption, or is it the narrow sense, corruption? And it's from that original sin that all actual sins come. Elder Gilliland often asks the question in our membership interviews, you know, why do you sin? And the answer given, or that we want to hear is because I choose to sin. It's my internal corruption. I choose to sin. It's my choice. The whole human race is in a state of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Any questions on sin? I think we're all pretty expert at this. Yes, Eric. But if they were to die, there's some kind of a 
race interrogated with Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard, obviously the Old Testament does talk about the age of accountability, um, to know their left hand from their right hand, that kind of thing. And there is an age. But all sinners are saved by Christ. John the Baptist somehow was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. So God can, in his wisdom, save an infant. Regeneration by the Spirit and remission of sins by his blood. You know, they need it. They're black. As sin, just like ours. Our hearts are black, just like ours. Let me go on here, unless there's... Oh, I'm sorry, Sue? Yeah, so, I mean, it's not hard to understand how it's over, right? But it almost feels like... I know... I understand what you're saying about choosing, but it almost feels like... Where did we have... How, I mean, it seems like that is what we're going to choose. Yeah. Yeah, if, if we're depraved and, and if we're not born again, we will choose sin, period. We will not choose good. Because anything done apart from faith is sin. So if I help the elderly woman across the street as a sinner, the reason I'm doing that is not faith. It's not for the glory of God. It's not for the honor of Christ. It's not for the good of his church. It's for me. For some reason, somehow, makes me look good or whatever, you know. So anything not done in faith, the plowing of the wicked is sin. The sowing of the seed, the harvesting of the crops, that's wicked if it's not done in faith. And everything else is done, that is done by the sinner is sin because he chooses to do it apart from faith in Christ. I'm sorry, was there? Okay. Sin is the worst of all evils. It's punishable by death. It is odious to God, loathsome in his sight. It's pro it's, the evil of it lies primarily in the wrong that's done to God. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He took one of his top 30 soldiers, Uriah the Hittite, one of the top 30, took his wife, impregnated her, killed Uriah, took her, and yet he says, against God and God only have I sinned. So the evil of it, all of that evil, the shrapnel was going everywhere, and yet he recognizes that the evil lies primarily in the wrong that it does to the name and the majesty of God. It is an open grave, the venom of asps, curses and bitterness, and there is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest suffering. Which is one of the reasons why the martyrs did what they did. They chose death rather than sin. And by God's grace, that's what we'll do. We don't know. In the hour of trial, Lord willing, he'll give us the grace that we need. But let us never presume 
upon our own strength and courage because Peter's a perfect example. I'll die with you. Oh, really? Before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. The sin is of the devil, who was the first to sin, the first one to tempt others to sin. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. He portrays sin as something pleasurable, profitable, desirable. These are called fleeting pleasures. It is, it is pleasurable. There is a certain pleasure for the flesh for a season. But it always comes with a sting. He who sins tramples upon God's law, profanes his name, defies his will, and grieves his spirit. And there is in every sin, even the least, the seed of rebellion and the settled hatred of God. It wrongs and injures the sinner's own soul by defacing and defiling and damning it. When you and I sin, don't we feel defiled? I mean, you've, you've felt that. It's, it's dirty. It's, it's, it's a defiling thing. He who fails to find me, wisdom is speaking, injures himself, and all who hate me love death. So there's this idea that, you know, it's just not just guilt, it's shame. Any questions on, on that? Okay. Well, finally, it invokes the penalty of death. The wages of sin is death. It defiles both the body and the soul. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God. It's likened to a disease that infects and poisons every part of us. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. It's irrational. Sin is the great irrationality. There is no explanation. Why did you do that? I don't know. <laughs> it's irrational. And a person who sins not only acts wickedly, but foolishly. And as one, one Puritan put it, our sins feast the devil. It's painful, always accompanied by misery. Death always follows in its wake. It's enslaving. It's a terrible taskmaster, has no mercy toward those who serve its purpose. And the best way to understand the evil of sin is to contemplate the cross of Jesus Christ, what he had to endure to pay the penalty. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abandoned by his father, suffering the infinite weight of God's wrath, we see what we deserve. That's what we deserve. And only by God's mercy and grace that he doesn't give it to us. So thank God for the willingness of our, our Savior to suffer in our place. Any final questions on the fall or sin? Jonathan? Is there any reason to think that Adam and Eve repented and were elect ultimately? Absolutely. Oh, really? Absolutely. Yeah, because God sacrificed the animals, clothed them with these skins. Um, Adam names his wife Eve, the mother of all living. Not just physically, spiritually. So, and from her, her loins, so to speak, will come the champion. So, yes, I think we'll see Adam and Eve in heaven. And don't walk up to him and say, hey, why did you do that? <laughs> because you would have done the same thing. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes, brother. Um, I wrote this down. So, you 
if there was no gain in experiential knowledge of evil and eating the fruit for last time, where does the knowledge that they're naked originate? And what is it about exercising judicial discretion or failing to do so correctly that let them know they were naked? Is naked meant to be uh, euphemistic for now they judicially discern their own guilt? No, I don't think that has to do, I think the shame comes as a result of defilement. So because they judged wrongly and they sinned, then the effect of that, not only is the guilt and the punishment of sin, they become rebels, worthy and deserving of punishment, but they also are defiled. The, the image of God is defaced. And that brings in its wake, or with it, shame. So it's not so much that somehow shame is only associated with the judicial act of making a verdict. It's because they're defiled. Um, and that was the first time anybody's ever felt shame when they were defiled like that. Yeah, Laura? At that moment, are they also not vulnerable for the first time? Oh, well, they continue to be vulnerable, but they Satan's got them. Satan's got them. Is that what you mean? Yeah. They weren't, they, they weren't vulnerable until. Well, they were vulnerable. You're right. I mean, they were subject to fall. So they were always vulnerable. Okay. Yeah. And that's one of the things God, the promise was, hey, if you pass this probationary test, you won't be vulnerable, right? They'll be confirmed in holiness, which is what we have now. Jesus passed the test. The second Adam was victorious. So in Christ, we're no longer vulnerable in the sense that our eternal salvation is in jeopardy. You know, we're vulnerable to pain. He can kill the body. Can't kill the soul. Why can't he kill the soul? Well, because God, in Christ, preserves us. And then he's going to raise up the body at the end of time. Isn't that great? The very same body in which you suffered. <clears throat> the very same body in which you served God and praised Christ and worshipped by the Spirit. That body is going to be raised up. And it's going to be glorious, like his body. Flying around and going through doors and all kinds of things, you know. It's going to be amazing. Absolutely amazing. We have a glorious future. Oh, I'm, I'm way over time. Let's, I'm sorry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've revealed to us about our history and our origin. And we're humbled to think that our race is in an estate of sin and misery. But we thank you for the promise of eternal life in Christ through the covenant of grace. May you continue to bless our studies and our conversations in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.